What is the best way to lead during a crisis? Be decisive, be flexible, be calm and controlled, or be agile and open. Hello, and welcome to Public Sector Perspectives, ideas and insights about the public sector during the COVID crisis. I'm Hayley Rickardson from IPA Victoria. Leadership in a crisis is a hot topic right now. As COVID-19 took hold the world over, from government to business, we've witnessed the broad spectrum of leadership and how it manifests, or how it doesn't. Dr. Wesley Payne McClendon has written and researched extensively on the topic of leadership and is the executive director of McClendon Research Group. In the past two months, he has written about the seven habits of leaders in a crisis and leadership, pandemics, and the future of working. Wes is also an adjunct professor at graduate business schools in Melbourne, Sydney, and Dubai, and is on the advisory panel at Victoria University's Change, Innovation, and Leadership Master's degree program. So tell me a bit more about McClendon Research Group. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, McClendon Research Group is a thought leadership-based advisory organization uh, that's focused on le leveraging company and people data um, to evidence the business case for leadership, transformation and change, and reimagine the possibilities of everything. So we've done a fair bit of work from a thought leadership perspective, publishing in Australian Institute of Training and Development, uh, human resource director in Australia, Canada, US and Asia, uh, the HR director in the UK, uh, Blue Notes uh, via the ANZ Bank, um, and industry associations, including Power and Equipment Australia, and then books that have been published in about 25 countries, uh, which is called Strategy, People and Performance. So we use this idea of thought leadership to help people understand um, and frame problems and challenges. And then again, use company and people data to help evidence the business case for change. And you created McClendon Research Group or founded it. Yes. Uh, in fact, I did that many years ago in, in actually in 1998 when I was in graduate school. And my first client was the U.S. Department of Education. So I did a big uh, piece of work for them um, because I had worked with the Clinton administration, um, had developed lots of uh, relationships uh, throughout the um, various departments um, in government. Um, and so this was a way literally to take the research that I was doing for my dissertation and apply that to work I was doing at the time with the U.S. Department of Education. So how have you brought thought leadership to the different areas that you've worked in in the past? Well, um, so in the three areas that I've worked in, in academia, executive roles and management consulting, um, it's easiest in academia. So at Macquarie Business School in Sydney, what I've, able to, what I've been able to do is to take my thought leadership, use that in class, um, which provides me not only a, an easier way of having a conversation, uh, developing exercises and activities, but it gives students kind of a takeaway. And thought leadership isn't a research paper, you know, quiet as it's kept, it's more an opinion paper and allows me to formulate ideas using information um, that's in the public domain um, that isn't as heavy, for example, as a, as a research paper, but you know, hopefully makes a point, provides a bit of data and perspective um, that people can gravitate towards and use to better understand the more complex theories and frameworks uh, that come from uh, more academic texts. So I'm able to use that and again, using some case studies um, from businesses that I've worked with around the world, I'm able to use that and help them understand 
you know, strategic HR management or change or leadership. I use it in an executive role um, more to help uh, a senior leadership team understand a particular perspective. Um, so working in Saudi Arabia as the general manager, or excuse me, the, the group uh, general manager for um, a large construction architecture and engineering firm, I was able to use some of my thought leadership to make the business case for developing uh, a performance management system and using an automated system, looking at different ways to develop people to identify performance, various levels of performance, um, the structure around pay and reward based on performance management. So again, using thought leadership to help convey a message um, in a short you know, two or three page document is a lot easier than trying to bang on the desk and uh, get people to understand um, a, a different perspective. Um, and obviously the last piece in management consulting is a very easy one to apply. And actually what I tended to do, uh, for example, at Ernst & Young, I would write a paper, uh, send it out to a number of leaders, invite them to the office for, um, you know, I use a a wine making activity where we, you know, we're eating dinner and we've got this guy talking about different wines that go with different foods. People have read my thought leadership and we engage in a conversation about it. Um, and from that, we literally, you know, exchange ideas and, and that leads to, to work. Um, and so from that perspective, it's more of a, a business development tool, but, you know, obviously from a, a grassroots perspective, it's just a way to engage the, other leaders in across different industries, whether that be at the CEO or managing director level or HR or um, operations level. In one of your recent articles, you outline examples or case studies of mistakes leaders have made in response to COVID. What do you think are the biggest changes and challenges leaders are facing in this crisis? I think the, the biggest and most profound challenge is how to manage kind of this notion of being away from people. Um, the idea of seeing, touching and feeling people that you manage or lead every day um, is quite a different perspective when you're just, you know, uh, working from home or working remotely. Um, and I think people have struggled because they're notion of leading or managing is people being seen. I'll never forget uh, the CEO of a company where I was working in Washington, D.C., would have this um, walk around that he would do it about just after six o'clock. And he, he didn't have anything to say, but he wanted to walk around and make sure people were there. They were still there because he was still there. And it was important that you were in your office uh, when Bob walked around. And I think that's the the same perspective now that leaders have. They want people to be, you know, at their desks or, you know, be seen to be doing work or busy or whatever the case may be. But when people are working remotely, that creates, I think, a real challenge for, you know, what I would call old school leaders who are uncomfortable leading teams that they can't see, that they can't touch, that they can't reach out to uh, with relative ease. Now it's a matter of, you know, calling somebody on a mobile phone, which clearly isn't a big deal, but in terms of how people relate somebody who's not answering that phone uh, because they're attending to a child or doing whatever, but because they can't see, they don't know. And that creates a problem. And it's a threat to those leaders who are unsure of their own leadership capability. They transfer that 
issue or challenge to the people that they lead. You also write that crisis doesn't change leaders, it merely reinforces who they are. How then might a leader navigate their own flaws or shortcomings during a crisis to increase their capability as a leader? Like I think one of the things that the people have to realize, it's, it's kind of like teaching an old dog new tricks, but kind of at a fundamental level, you know, from in a sports context, you know, if, if I'm, you know, the captain of a team, it's at the end of the game, everybody knows that I'm going to, you know, take a jump shot from the right side of the floor. And even if situations change around me, I'm still going to take that jumper from the right side of the floor. And so if, if I've been successful over time, taking that jump shot from that point on the floor and things around me change, I may not be as successful. And so it's really difficult to navigate change when, you know, kind of your go-to moves have always been successful in the past. And, and so I think, you know, what we need to think about is, and I wrote it in an article that's yet to be published called Leading Transformation. And I kind of look at a transformation life, uh, life cycle that allows people to start to make those types of changes. So the first thing is unlearning, you know, what you've done before. So we have, you know, what I call um, a muscle, uh, muscle memory in, in, from a leadership perspective. So it's leadership muscle memory that says, if I've done these things this way for this long, it's going to be very difficult for me to change. And so uh, identify in these three stages, if you will, unlearning that muscle memory and expectations that are linked to meaning, habits, symbols, and relationships that form the basis for an incremental change mindset. So all of the things that we do, we do them the way we've always done before, which creates an incremental change mindset, which means we can't jump from A to B. We have to go A1, A2, A3, A4, A5. And so that restricts us from doing anything different. The second stage is around looking at um, how we revise our frames of reference, um, redefine the value proposition, and reimagine um, the worldview so that you're now, you know, what I call um, breakthrough big thinking. And and that allows me to get to a, a different way of looking at problems. And then the third stage is around creating and adoption, which is a process change, or innovation, which is a value change, and disruption, which is a, a radical or discontinuous change. And, and these three stages allow people to go from effectively what they do and are comfortable with now to creating a different worldview, reimagining, again, the possibilities of everything, and creating different types of changes so that I can see it differently and get to a different point. And I use the example of, of Kodak who created the digital camera, they stagnated because they didn't get rid of what they had done before. Various other companies um, were able to move through that. So Netflix, for example, you know, went from you know, competing with something like a, a block, blockbuster-esque type of organization um, to now having you know, nearly 200 million subscribers. That's because they changed the way in which people engage with entertainment. Um, and so from a, from a leadership perspective in the context of you know, who we are, it's hard to unwrap that and move and become something different. Again, when your go-to move has always been this way um, and others have been able to successfully leave those kind of bad habits behind, if you will, if you will and become something um, much different and hopefully much better. 
In your view, how can leaders rebuild their teams to move to a post-COVID world? And what kind of performance do you think they can expect from their teams? I think the biggest thing they can do is build teams that are far more self-sufficient, self-reliant, manage themselves um, and develop capability to insert knowledge, skills and abilities well required in real time. I think teams are best positioned to assess their own needs and identify ways to address development gaps. And in that context, the leader's role is far more advisory. So their focus is on communicating purpose, uh, providing insight, guidance and direction, and then getting out of the way. So in a post-COVID world, what service changes would you want to keep or what internal changes to systems, processes, attitudes would you want to keep in place? Look, I think the biggest one is going to be around how performance is managed. And I think that creates the, the basis on which everything else emanates. And in effect, what I believe is the performance management system should be viewed you know, kind of on three levels. And, and again, back to the sports analogy, I kind of see this as, you know, in the old days, player coaches, you know, were in vogue. They'd play, they'd sit on the sidelines, they'd coach and manage. Going forward, in terms of what teams do and how they're structured, the management or the leader is on the sidelines. And what they provide, again, is that purpose. And the team members, again, because Again, systems and processes around performance management have been, they're somewhat antiquated. And therefore, these one-way interactions, linear interactions between a manager and a subordinate no longer fit this new model post-COVID. And so I think what's going to have to happen is the teams themselves will be able to manage themselves. The teams themselves will be able to look at performance as a way of saying, what do we need to do in real time, as opposed to being forced to look at things, you know, even feedback is backward looking and doesn't help me focus on the future. So in effect, the, the systems and processes that focus on performance management need to be far more agile, um, far more focused on real time, uh, where information and data is captured, but it's captured at the team level, um, whether that's client-facing or otherwise. But again, it's almost a separation where leaders are now with that advisory type of role. It's, it's almost kind of a hands-off because their perspective is, is relevant to the extent that they provide insights and guidance and direction, but not in terms of focusing on hard you know, tightly wound metrics. That's where the team is involved. The team is actually um, in a much better position to look at those types of metrics that help facilitate what the team is doing in real time and how they change and develop together. So the performance management piece, I think, is the first place where there's going to be a significant change. I think the other piece is around simply how teams work You know, so one of the things that, you know, you'll probably see now is, you know, if you're coming to the end of a lease, it's unlikely that you're going to renew that same lease because I would say, you know, either a third to a half of your workforce is going to work from home or work remotely more broadly. And so the systems and processes, again, that link you using technology will have to change to meet that new environment post-COVID. 
from a public service perspective, they'll definitely have to, to look at, you know, being able to manage off-site interaction, whether, that, whether that's, you know, using Teams and whiteboards as a technology um, or just the way in which we catch up. Um, in one of the articles that I wrote, I talked about the need to check in, um, the need to be transparent in what you're doing, and the need to allow your teams to, to do what they do best in your role as a leader um, is more along the lines of asking how can you help them? And that's likely to get a response that is both uh, transparent, direct, um, and, and helps the leader lead versus trying to manage at that ground level. Coming back to what we spoke about earlier and the leader who feels more uncomfortable not being directly in touch with their team, not being able to see, feel, touch their team, and then looking at the way the innovations you're talking about in performance management and how to sort of go back to work and recreate the the team environment, it seems then that trust is kind of the biggest thing that will need to be built between both the staff trusting the leader and trusting their kind of vision or direction or guidance and then also Mm. obviously the leader trusting the team to do what they're sort of leading with and with the added sort of barrier I guess of working remotely it's Mm. how how would you approach building that trust and establishing it yeah look that's a really interesting question trust is probably one of the underpinnings of all of this and and why to some degree leaders are scared Uh, and I talked about this um, in a previous article but trust is what is missing and forces leaders to micromanage, not because they're afraid of what their subordinate will do, it's their own incapability of trusting their own leadership. And so, you know, instead of me saying, I'm gonna allow these people to do what they do because I don't feel I trust my own capability, I'm gonna put them under a thumb. So I think one of the key pieces is being transparent about what you're doing, what you're working on. Because again, you can't see folks and therefore the idea of knowing that they're working on this particular project and not doing something else, trust has to, to come into play. And, and look, I think the only way you can do that, and it doesn't happen over time. And the most unfortunate thing about COVID is the fact that there wasn't time to develop those types of relationships beforehand. So you kind of have to trust your gut, hope you've got the right folks in the right places doing the right things and trust that they have the capability to do what needs to be done. But as a leader, I think, you know, it's almost, and I say this often, they have to lead and get out of the way because leaders themselves, again, based on their inability to lead, get in the way. They ask questions that are irrelevant or put undue or unrequired pressure on people to to reach certain deadlines. You know, so I need it tomorrow at noon. Why do you need it tomorrow at noon? You know, it's not required until the end of the week, but because they're nervous about themselves and their, you know, ability to allow people to get on with what they need to do, they get on top of it. Um, So, you know, one of the things in terms of, you know, what's required going forth, I talk about three things. One is technology, data, and autonomy. And the technology is obviously around this, this notion of trusting the technology that's going to provide us with the information we need to be able to communicate with each other. Data um, is going to be around the data that we use for our customers 
people data, company data that we can use to provide us with insights and give or trust your team enough to be able to use those insights, decipher the critical components of those insights, and then apply them in decision-making. And then the most important piece is around that autonomy, which again, I think because we're not able to see the people that report to us on a regular basis in the way that we have before, the autonomy is the greatest, I guess, outgrowth of trust that you can provide to let them get on with it. um, And again, not get in the way. So those are the three things that I think trust will need to, uh, to take hold of is the idea of, of technology, data, um, and autonomy. What do you think all of this means for the work of the broader public sector? Well, look, I think the, the public sector is in a very unique position, you know, because they have, you know, a platform that's required um, in many instances. So you can't kind of jump over the public sector there. They're there in many instances. But I think it's an opportunity for them to lead as, a, as an industry, if you will. But I think in many ways, they have to let go of what they've done before and feel confident in their capability to leap ahead. Uh, you know, talk about this idea of disruption and radical change. And governments aren't good at that type of stuff. Um, governments are good at, you know, continuing on in a very methodical, practical, tried and true method of, of change. And that change, again, as I talked about with the notion of transformation, happens quite incrementally because the muscle memory of government is very, very tight. But I think, you know, for most organizations, including the government, you know, you're going to have to be more comfortable with ambiguity, allow trust to, to take hold. And, and allow these things to evolve and be comfortable jumping from one thing to another using technology, using data, using autonomy to say, it's okay that people come in once a week because they're able to be efficient and productive at home. Um, it's okay that I check in, not every day at nine o'clock, but once a week. We have an agenda. We talk about things. Well, we step back and we just catch up if and when we can during the week. Those types of non-quote-unquote government characteristics and culture will have to be far more um, embedded into a new culture and the new normal so that people can literally get on with it. Dr. Wesley Payne-McClendon, thank you so much for being a part of Public Sector Perspectives. Thank you very much. that brings us to the end of this episode of Public Sector Perspectives for this week. Public Sector Perspectives is produced by IPA Victoria. If you missed the last episode, IPA's National President, Dr Gordon de Brouwer, sits down with the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet, Chris Eccles, in a special episode from the series Work with Purpose, a National Perspective. All episodes of Public Sector Perspectives are available on the IPA Victoria SoundCloud page. You can get in touch with Public Sector Perspectives by emailing info at vic.ipa.org.au or via IPA Victoria on all the usual social media channels. I'm Hayley Ricketson, and thanks for listening.